All right, so here in uh, Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is teaching us about that aspect of our salvation that we refer to as sanctification. Uh, and in the pursuit of our sanctification, pursuit of holy hearts and, and holy lives, uh, Paul teaches us that we're going to need to, to understand that we will feel an, an internal struggle or war. And the reason for that is that as Christians, there are now two natures in us. Uh, the old sinful nature, which Paul calls the flesh, and then also the new um, spiritual nature in Christ, which he refers to as the spirit. And so with respect to the law of God in particular, uh, these two natures are uh, pulling us in opposite directions. And so in order to, to grow in our sanctification, uh, we have to learn to distinguish between them. To know in terms of our own urges and the arguments that go on in our mind. Um, what's the flesh and what's the spirit? And then Paul tells us simply, if we walk after the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, so, um, so that makes good sense if you understand that these things are pulling in opposite directions. So to help us out in distinguishing between what is of the spirit and what's of the flesh... Uh, Paul's given us in, in 5, 19-21, a list of the works of the flesh. And as we've analyzed this list, uh, we, we detect, I think, four categories of the works of the flesh, which we're referring to, for the sake of convenience, as the category of sexual immorality, the category of idolatry, the category of uh, hatred, uh, and then finally the category of revelry. Uh, and so we looked at sexual immorality, idolatry, and we're mostly through um, the works of the flesh that fall under the category of hatred. But we, got, we have a few of those um, to pick up on at this point where we left off last week. So if you look at that um, list, that brings us to the end, the very end of verse 20, where Paul speaks of heresies uh, as works of the flesh. So the reference here, we see the word heresy, is not primarily to, to doctrine. We speak of um, certain doctrines, false doctrines, as heresies. Uh, but the reference in, in this context is, is more the, the tendency of, of men to, uh, to follow their, their own chosen tenets, um, in the matters of religion and, and withdraw from the rest of the church. Um, so heresies there can also be referred to as sex, S-E-C-T-S. Right? So it, it goes along with this idea of division and rivalry within the, within the church, and sometimes that happens over doctrine. So one of the things that uh, I think is, makes sense to consider at this point is denominations. Uh, right, so we look at the the church in in the world now, and, and certainly here in the West, and the Church of Jesus Christ is divided up into all these different denominations: Presbyterians, uh, Baptists, Methodists, so forth. And then even within Presbyterians, uh, we have any number of smaller denominations where groups have split off from one another because their doctrinal uh, distinctives didn't quite match up. And so, um, so the question is, is, is such denominationalism, the dividing of the church into denominations, 
Is that consistent with the spirituality of the church? Or is that evidence of uh, the, the works of the flesh among us, dividing us up into these different sects? Well, um, let's say a few things about that. Um, one, the, the existence of denominations in the church today is due in large part to um, the, uh, the, the religious wars among Christians that took place in the 1500s, 1600s, and so forth, particularly in, in Europe. There was uh, something of a century-long bloodbath among different groups of, of Christians, which they just did not seem to be able to, to resolve one way or the other. Uh, and so kind of out of the Enlightenment, there, there grew a, a call for religious tolerance among Christians. There's a place um, for um, different groups of Christians with different beliefs and so different church denominations. And so denominations were kind of the, our solution in the West to the problem of the, the religious wars. Um, and certainly it's, it's better. Um, the denomination system has been better than the religious war um, system. Um, so that's one thing to, to consider. Um, the other thing that, that I would say about denominations is it seems to me that the, the denominations are okay um, as long as we, we understand them rightly with respect to our relationship to other denominations, right? <clears throat> so if for the sake of peace, um, liberty of conscience, we allow Christians to form into like-minded groups and form their own churches and distinguish themselves by, uh, by different names. That's all fine. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways in which we can see that as a, uh, as a good thing. Um, as long as there is still among us this, this recognition and the spirit of, of common Christian brotherhood. Um, so as long as we don't take those denominations to mean something that they don't mean, um, then I think that we're probably okay. So um, there definitely are um, sects or religious groups and we look at what they believe and, and in our judgment, it's no longer Christian. So that would be true of uh, some aspects of liberal Protestantism as uh, Jay Grisham Machen argued in the, in the 1920s. So sometimes there really is like, no, we're not a part of the same thing anymore. But within groups like Reformed Baptists and Anglicans and, and some of those groups like that, um, while we can still maintain our denominational differences and, uh, and labels and so forth, we, we always want to uh, also uh, feel about these other Christians as if they truly are brothers and sisters of Christ and express that in, uh, in various ways to reaffirm um, what we have in common, which is most important. So having said all of that, it's you also want to recognize here in this word heresies among Paul's lists of the, the lust of the flesh. That there is a tendency um, within us, which does not arise from the spirit, but arises from the flesh, to make something of these differences which ought not be. Right? So we always have to be on our, our, our guard. Like we, can, we can say it, um, oh, these denominations mean this, but not this. But then at the same time, uh, within us, our pride, our tendency towards um, envy, things like that. Um, and sometimes we can, in fact, begin to feel about these other Christians in ways that we, that we ought not. So we ought to be careful about uh, sectarianism, the spirit of sectarianism, even within our denominational system. 
Okay, any, um, any comments or questions on that? All right, <clears throat> the next one is a, is a big one. Um, among the lust of the flesh is envy, uh, which I think question was asked last week about a difference between jealousy and envy, and I don't see the difference, so I'm just treating those as the same. Um, so, uh, so what is envy? Uh, that's a familiar enough concept that maybe you can uh, offer up a, a definition or a description. What, what do we mean by envy? Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's a that's a form of envy, certainly, um, wanting what somebody else has. Um, what else can we say about envy? Yes, ma'am. I think it goes beyond wishing you had something that somebody else has, and it goes to I would do anything to get it. Okay. Right. So wanting it and being willing to do anything to get it. Yes, sir. I think we can understand it as referring to a sort of displeasure in the well-being and possessions of another person. So it's not just, you know, I want that stuff. I don't like that they have it. I don't like that they have good in the house and all that stuff. Okay. Alright. So now we're getting at it. So within the Yes, you see that other people uh, maybe are doing better than you are doing, have things that you don't have, that you want, including things like talents or um, physical athletic ability, attractiveness, you know, it could be, it could be anything, really. Um, and when you see that they ha- have something that you don't have or they're, they're better than you in some way or another or more blessed than you in some way or another, it affects the way that you feel about them is the thing, which is why it belongs in this list. So it's, envy's not just about things, that might be, uh, you know, greed or avarice, um, is a uh, immoderate, immoderate desire for things. But envy affects the way you feel about somebody, and, and just because they're doing so much, they're doing well, right? So it really is a nasty turn that takes place in our, our hearts in view of somebody else's uh, well-being and and blessedness, and so part of what you want is not you just want what they have, but you you want to take it from them, or you want them to lose it. You want to knock them down. Um, so that's a pretty um, pretty nasty thing that goes on in our hearts sometimes. Um, so envy can it can just kind of sit there and just brood um, and become bitterness and be sort of a a latent ill will towards other people and can act out in spiteful ways. And so one of the the observations that I would make from Scripture is that that oftentimes in the hostility that exists among different groups of people, the Bible um, points to to envy as the root motive. So um, under the New Covenant, the Jews are envious of Christ and envious of the Gentiles. You see the same sort of envy with Cain with respect to his brother Abel. And, um, and over and over again, um, envy is kind of pointed out as the thing that, uh, that, that, that takes an ugly turn within our hearts and then leads to all kinds of trouble and, and troublemaking in our lives. So that's a big one. Um, 
not just hatred of other people because they're our enemies, but envy of other people because they're doing better than, than we are doing. Um, <clears throat> the last one on the list here in the New King James is murders, um, which again is not there in some of the, the manuscripts um, that we have of the book of, of Galatians. Um, so in some, some editions of the Bible, English translations, it's not going to be there. Murder, of course, is to, to kill someone unlawfully um, or unjustly. And in spirit, it's just a desire to hurt people. Uh, and so you see the spirit of murder in things like uh, slander. Uh, and then also it can be associated in the Bible with conspiracy. So we don't, we don't like somebody... We want, to, we want to hurt them and bring them down, and so we will sort of enter into a conspiracy with other people who feel the same, uh, and so you can wind up with uh, little murderous groups and their, and their schemes trying to destroy somebody's reputation or um, push them to the, uh, to the outskirts or something like that. Okay, so you can kind of see uh, the main idea here is just how, how all these works of the flesh go together in one category. Hatred, spite, um, strife. Yeah, you, could, you could give it in any number of, of labels, but I'm calling it hatred here. Okay, any, um, any thoughts or questions? Yes, sir? Seems like you were going to Venn diagram them, but there's a lot of devaluing of the worth of another person in these last several, and that one can so easily overlap into the next. David took that man out because he wanted that man's wife. And it was easy to do so because he had the things he should have had. I see that a lot of these would cascade into the, into the next more easily. It's easier to murder if there's anything involved. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the interconnectedness, yeah. So give yourself over to one, and you, you make it easier for another one uh, to get a foothold. All right, the, um, the last category then I'm calling... Uh, Revelry, uh, and the two works of the flesh here are drunkenness and then what Paul here calls revelry. So, um, drunkenness, you know, what, you know what drunkenness is? That's a familiar concept to us. Um, I would say that there, there are Christians who are of the opinion that um, the Christians, all of us, ought not to partake of alcoholic beverages at all. Um, and in my opinion and the opinion of others, that uh, goes beyond what Scripture itself says. It seems fairly obvious when you consider all of the, uh, the information that God's people, Christ the Apostles, um, did partake of wine, and it was wine. It may have been watered down, but nonetheless it was wine. Um, and, um, and so the problem, the, the work of the flesh here is not necessarily partaking of uh, alcoholic um, drinks, but taking it to the point of drunkenness and um, so I do think that that's an, uh, particularly in a, in a church that serves wine and communion and, uh, and, and some of you uh, will partake of wine at, at dinner and things like this and, and we do this in front of our children um, I do think it's important often enough to be real clear um, a, little, a little wine fine, drunkenness not fine um, there's a line that 
you can cross. So when you cross that line, uh, you cross the line into sin. And as Christians, we're not to have anything to do with that and, um, and keep a safe, dif- safe distance from that line. Uh, and so the, the question then, of course, is, well, where's the line? And um, I think we know where the line is, right? Um, I think you can tell uh, when, when someone is starting to get drunk. Um, and if you partake of alcoholic beverages, you can tell when you're starting to get you know, at what point are you losing control? Um, at what point are you losing inhibitions that really ought to, to be there? At what point do you start acting a fool and saying things that you're, you wouldn't say if you weren't under the influence of alcohol? It, it's not that hard um, to, know where that, um, to know where that line is. And um, so we want to be clear about that. Um, there is something in us, in the flesh, that wants to cross that line. Um, but the Spirit urges us in the other direction. And so that's what we need to be paying attention to. And then lastly is uh, this word revelries, which can also be translated carousing. Uh, in our modern vernacular, this is what I've always heard of referred to as partying. Uh, and I can, I can still remember when I got in high school, so freshman in high school and being around some older high school kids and they were talking about partying and uh, I just didn't know what they were talking about that seemed silly all I could think about were birthday hats and pinatas Um, what do you do what are you talking about well now I know what they were talking about and so um, the connection between drunkenness and revelry is uh, is pretty well established so this is a sort of uh, having fun through drinking to excess and getting wild and staying up late and, uh, and those sorts of things. So carousing, partying, Paul also lists among the, uh, the lusts of the flesh. All right, so, um, so there's our complete uh, lists, our four categories, sexual immorality, idolatry, hatred, and revelry. Uh, any questions or comments at this point? All right, so I have a few questions for you. Um, I've mentioned that uh, certainly when you, when you consider the, the nature of paganism in the ancient world and as well in the modern world, it's pretty easy to see that there is a, a relationship between the categories of sexual immorality, idolatry, and revelry, that uh, oftentimes the, uh, the, the cults of these pagan gods included uh, both sexual immorality and revelry. And, um, and so the, the uh, attractiveness of that to, to the flesh uh, and to the fleshly mind is that it constitutes a sort of pleasure-seeking lifestyle. Um, and, but we're not talking about here the, the, the innocent, allowable pleasures of life. And there are many of those. Um, so as Christians, we're not anti-pleasure. Uh, but there's also a realm of, of promised pleasure that lies the, the bounds of what God allows, beyond the bounds of decency. And, and paganism leads people beyond those those bounds into the realms of 
idolatrous practice and sexual immorality and revelry. And so we, we see those things going together. Um, so uh, one of the places that you, you see that, as Paul mentions in, in 1 Corinthians 10, is in the, um, the, the golden calf incident. Um, they, remember that the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt had worshipped the, the gods of the Egyptians, and so they were familiar with and had taken part in the cult of those Egyptians' gods. They come out to Sinai, and Moses disappears, and they're frankly glad to see him go. Um, and they make the, the golden calf. When Moses comes down from the mountain, remember they hear this noise going on. And at first, Joshua thinks it's the sound of war. Um, and Moses says, no, it's the sound of singing. Uh, and it says there, um, uh, of that scene, and this is what Paul cites, they rose up to eat and then to play. And so there was feasting going on and there was partying going on. Um, and so the whole, uh, the whole essence of pagan cult was breaking out there at the foot of Mount Sinai as they turned from the, the Lord and his law unto the worship of this golden calf. So, um, so that's pretty clear how those things all go together. But here's a, um, here, here's a more challenging question then. So what then is the relationship between sexual immorality, idolatry, and revelry on the one hand, and then hatred on the other hand? If you look at these three, what you, what you might see is the attractiveness of a pleasure-seeking lifestyle. But hatred doesn't really fit in with that. Right? Um, and if you were to, to talk to pagans, whether ancient or modern pagans, um, and you were to ask them about things like hatred and strife, they would say, oh no, we, um, that's not what we're about at all. We're about love. We're about peace. So what do you think? Any, any insight, any suggestion as to the relationship that we ought to be aware of between those three things that constitute the, the pagan's pleasure-seeking lifestyle, and then this fourth lengthy category of all this hatred and strife. Yes, ma'am. Uh, my first thought is uh, the word discontentment. Mm -hmm. um, so you're uh, discontent with what a life that is in God could be, or, or just maybe do things that the life of God. Now, so you're seeking those pleasures, but then also, the flip side is, so you're seeking something that you think is positive here, but then you also have the negative, like envy we talked about mm -hmm. um, yesterday. So maybe, I mean, to me, the word that kind of jumped out at me was just discontentment all around. Off, you know, discontent, you're seeking these things that you think are positive, but also having these negative feelings on the others. Okay. All right. That sounds like a good insight to me. Yes, sir. So that's a great passage where, where James actually makes that connection for us. Um, that it's, it's the, the lusting for these pleasures um, 
that actually leads to interpersonal uh, warfare. Um, so, you know, if you, if, if there perhaps was a time in, in your life where this was your lifestyle, um, pagan pleasure-seeking lifestyle, or you've known others and that was their life and their lifestyle, um, good relationships for the most part in those people's lives? Not at all, right? And is that because they entered into it? Because, you know, I wouldn't really have rotten relationships with people. Uh, no. But that's what you get, right? And the reason is because even though we have these four different categories of the lust of the flesh, it's still the same nature. And you don't actually get to pick and choose, right? If you, in, in pursuing the pleasure-seeking lifestyle of paganism, um, the fornication and the, and the revelry and, and the so forth, if you give yourself over to the lust of the flesh, you also give yourselves over to this other category. Right? So you're going to be full of hatred and division and, and strife, and it's going to wreak havoc upon your, your interpersonal relationships, and they're going to be miserable. Right? And um, so that's like kind of there in the, um, in the fine print in paganism, but Paul brings it out into to bold print here in the, in the lust of the flesh. <clears throat> so, you know, positively, when we talk about walking in the, in the spirit, you know, if that heads in the opposite direction, what does that mean? Well, it does mean respect for God-ordained sexual boundaries. That's, that's what the spirit, how the spirit would lead us. Uh, in that realm, it means refusal to partake in idolatrous worship, feasts, and parties, and those sorts of things. And, and it does mean a degree of sobriety in one's social life. It doesn't mean that you don't have a social life, but you don't have that kind of a social life. Right? And all those feel like restrictions upon us. But along with it, it also means a loving heart uh, and healthy, peaceful relationships with other people. Um, so look at it the opposite way as well. Yes, sir? This is making me think of actually a bumper sticker that I saw on our way church a couple of weeks ago sitting at a stoplight. It just said, love yourself. Uh, I think in the heart of all of this, you have that, that mentality as well. Whether it be idolatry, what are we doing? We're making gods in our own image, right? And adultery, obviously, we're thinking of ourselves Yeah, that makes sense. That reminds me, in, um, we, this year in, in school we read Aristotle's Ethics, and he distinguished among different kinds of friendships. Um, and he described the true friendship as like the mutual respect among virtuous persons. It was like the, the deep and lasting friendship. But then there was another kind of friendship, which he said was very common, which was really a pleasure-seeking friendship. And you had these friends that you 
have because you find the company to be pleasurable as you're seeking pleasures together. And that that was really quite superficial. And like you said, that, that, and you just watch those things. You know, as soon as it stops being pleasurable, then it's over. Um, and, and more than over, a lot of times it, it ends really badly. So, um, all right. Um, so I think those are, those are good insights into that. The last thing that you see there um, before we move on in, in verse 21 are the words, and the like. So you have this long list of the works of the flesh, drunkenness, reveries, and the like. So Paul kind of leaves this thing open-ended. And what that suggests to me is that, um, again, what the Apostle Paul is describing here is a, a particular lifestyle uh, with its attendant values, um, which we associate with paganism. And it's, it's familiar enough to us. Maybe we ourselves have been a part of that and come out of that, um, or maybe we, we see that going on all around us. So in, in the Apostle Paul, by this list, has been describing the, the, the lust, the works of the flesh that characterize that life and that lifestyle. And at this point, in speaking of the, the sexual immorality and the idolatry and the, the hatred and the revelry, he feels like he's said enough for us to know what he's talking about. Um, and he says, and of course, and everything else that goes with that. And there are some other recognizable things that go with that, such as greed, right? And an excessive um, overvaluing of material wealth um, and those sorts of things. Um, gossip, he didn't mention, but gossip clearly um, goes with that, that world and that lifestyle. Blasphemy would be another one. It's just, a, it's just an interesting thing. Um, that as people move towards paganism and the pagan lifestyle, they, they take up this practice of invoking the name of God or of Jesus in ways that are irreverent. It's just coming out of their mouth all the time. Right? So, so this is not an exhaustive list. We could continue to go, you know, what else characterizes this pagan lifestyle that we're, that we're talking about? Well, we know. Um, it's familiar enough to us that we don't have to present a complete list. But, uh, but at least in our own minds, we need to be clear about what that is. So then Paul makes this statement as he kind of rounds this out in verse 21. Drunkenness. I'm in 21, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past. I told you this before, I'm telling you again, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, let's start with the word practice. Because that word is there in the Greek. We're not just supplying something that we feel needs to be there. But there actually is a, is a word there um, which is translated practice. What does that word suggest to you? Yeah, Matt. You can have, you can have a wide range of things. You can practice things like 
an intent to improve on them, or to persist in them, or to increase in them, you know, practicing your instrument, but you can also practice things like you know, part of your life habitually, not something you're actually intent on. And I think those two definitions would mean two different things. Right. And which one do you think is the one that, that Paul intends? Yeah, that's what I tend to think as well. Uh, I mean, your, your point about the two possible meanings is, is well taken, and, and certainly there may be a sense in which the first one may be, be true in some people's lives, but it, it really is, Paul is not saying, if you ever do something that falls under the, the category of one of these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, but it's rather, if this is your life, if you're still in that lifestyle, and this is your, your practice, though you, though you profess to be a Christian, yet we can all look and see, you haven't actually come out of that paganism. You're, you're, still, you're still involved in sexual immorality. Right? You're still in, a, in, in one of those relationships. You're, um, you're, you're still engaging in the practice of, of idols, going to the, to the high places, whatever on Friday night um, you're still engaging in revelry right? your, your, your relationships are all still poisoned by, uh, by the old hatred and, and enmity and envy and all that sort of stuff right? that's, that's what Paul's talking about like, we all know this lifestyle that, that we associate with paganism we came out of that um, we still see it all around us and if that's where you still are then that's what it means to practice these things is the way I take Paul to mean it here. Um, in in First John, John makes some some statements um, to the effect of you know if you if anyone sins, he is not born of God or whatever. And we struggle with with John's language there. Um, and most of the time, we try to understand John. We we apply this distinction that Paul's making here when he invokes the word practice. Um, we all understand that as Christians, because of the flesh, um, oftentimes the things that we would do, we do not do. And the things that we would not do, that we do. There, there is a struggle. Um, and in that struggle, the flesh gets the upper hand sometimes. And you, you do things that you recognize as sin. And you regret those. And you repent of those before God. That's one thing. Right? It's another thing um, to still be abandoned um, onto a pagan lifestyle while you're claiming to be a Christian. So it's, it's not really that, that hard, I think, um, to understand what the apostles are, are talking about here. And, and what Paul says here is that, I told you before, I tell you again, Christians, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
If you don't come out of that, um, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So, so here's an important question, just in our overall all reading of Scripture. What is the kingdom of God? It's a huge theme. Uh, it's a phrase that's used and highlighted, certainly in uh, books like the Gospel of Matthew. So what is it? Uh, how, would you, how would you define it? Yes, sir. So the reference to the, to the kingdom of God is a reference to God as king, um, and thus the rule or the reign of God. So that, that seems pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, but doesn't God, is, doesn't he rule and reign over everything? Isn't he on the throne now? Isn't he sovereign? Um, so isn't everything then the, the kingdom of God? Yes, sir. Okay, all right. So, yes, ma'am. It, it, the answer is um, yes, as long as you make a place for the possession of that now. Yes, if you, if you put, if in your mind or in your words, you put the kingdom of God off entirely to another word, now we're we're not really speaking of it as the Bible speaks of it. So certainly it does refer to eternal life, to heaven. Um, that, is, that is the kingdom of God. But there is also, as the, the Messiah enters into this world in rebellion against God, uh, and the Messiah is now reasserting the reign of God and bringing people into subjection unto God as his people, we're seeing the kingdom of God come. Um, so it is coming, it has now come, we are awaiting its consummation, so this is all the, the sort of language. So the way I think of it is, it, it is important and true to affirm God is sovereign over everything. There, there's a sense in which God rules over all now. Um, but when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it, it, it tends to be speaking particularly of the, um, the, the redemptive rule of God, would be a good way to put it. Um, or we might say the, the, the blessed rule of God. God uh, reigning over his people 
um, blessing his people and the, the people loving it to be so. Um, that's kind of what we're, we're talking about. And so as an, as an inheritance, um, then that certainly does refer to the consummation of, of that redemptive world and that is heaven or eternal life. So we pulled together a lot of elements, but I think I have had the basic idea. So in order to inherit the kingdom of God, what do you have to be? Who receives the inheritance? Yes. The son. Right. The son and then sons. Right. So Christ is, as the son of God, is the is the, the first and rightful heir of the kingdom of God. But then Paul also says through the grace of adoption, we have become joint heirs with Christ because we too are sons of God. So one of the ways to take Paul's statement here is to say, if you continue to practice these things, if you don't come out of that paganism truly, and you're not fooling God, and I don't think you're fooling yourself, um, then you're not a child of God. Um, and and, and that since you're not a child of God, you're not a true child of God, you, you should not be an heir of the kingdom of God. So he really is saying, you're not saved. Like that's how we would say it. You're not really saved. Like, I hear what you're saying. I see that you show up at church. But let's not kid ourselves here. These are just words. In your heart, nothing has changed. And we see that because really in your life, um, nothing has changed. Um, So, I want to get to this so we, can, so we can move on next week. So, one of the things that, that we all um, feel when we, uh, when we read Paul <clears throat> is that it seems like, with respect to assurance of salvation, that what Paul gives us in justification, he kind of turns around and takes away from us in sanctification. In justification, you hear him saying, your salvation uh, is, or your justification is not on the basis of your works at all. It's a, it's a you're justified, counted righteous in God's sight, entirely by His grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the works of the law. And so he said, well, I can rest in that. But then Paul comes around with sanctification, and he says, but, if you're still doing these, if this is still the practice of your life, these works, which we recognize as the works of the flesh, then there's reason to doubt whether you're saved. So now we're, here we're saying, I have the assurance of my salvation apart from my works, and here we're saying, but in view of the works or the lack thereof, um, I'm taking away that assurance. And, and that can feel like a conflict. Um, so, one of the questions is, is Paul really doing that? And, and my feeling at this point is, yeah, that's kind of what, he, that's kind of what he's doing. Um, and the question is, well, why is, he, why is he doing that? And I would stress, it's not a trick. Um, but rather, it's, it's something that is necessary in that in speaking to people about Christian salvation, you have to distinguish between justification and sanctification. And you have to speak of justification first, 
And then you have to speak of sanctification. So that's what Paul does. He says, here, I want to talk to you about salvation. And he starts with justification. And as he talks about justification and being justified by God's grace through faith apart from the works of the law, then we begin to, to come to draw a conclusion about the assurance of salvation. But then Paul's not done. But then once we've established that, then he moves on to sanctification, and then he begins to clarify himself somewhat, and the picture becomes more accurate. Um, and so then works come back into the picture with respect to assurance. It, it's never the case that our justification is on the basis of our works. So Paul's teaching is, is perfectly true in that respect. Um, but it is also true that, that where there is the faith that brings us into this justified relationship in Christ, there is a work of God. Um, there is the, the, the work of regeneration and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which necessarily then produces a change of heart, a change of life, moving in the progression of holiness. And so where we see somebody with their mouth professing faith in Jesus Christ, but no change in their life, indicating no real change in their heart, there's reason to question their faith, the genuineness of their faith, which then deprives them of their justification. So it's complicated, but it's complicated. Right? And so that's why Paul has to kind of teach it in stages and why we do feel as we go from his teaching on justification and sanctification, what he seems to give us absolutely, um, at first, he kind of begins to take away from us later. I know that's complicated and a lot to throw at you in the last two minutes, but, um, but that's kind of how, how I understand it. To, to attempt to interpret Paul's teaching on sanctification where that doesn't happen at all, uh, I think leads to problems to where we're not really hearing what Paul is actually saying to us. Uh, but, the, but the explanation is not, is not really that hard when you consider the entirety of it. Okay, yes sir? Would it, would it be appropriate to say like, because God's law is written on the hearts of those who have the Holy Spirit, and because the Holy Spirit is influencing our hearts to listen to those commands, therefore we necessarily not worship other gods, not murder, not envy, in the way that others do? Is it, is it a causal thing? So that it's not the cause of our salvation, but we say it's an effect of our salvation. Right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Because we're saved, these things should naturally flow from our character, and if we don't see those, we have every reason to doubt that we're actually saved. Yes. That's so, that makes a problem. No, so justification is by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Jesus alone. But the faith that justifies um, also sanctifies. So that the, the, the fruits and the evidences of a true and lively faith are the, the good works, the, the movement towards a holy life. That doesn't mean a sin-free life, but it definitely means renouncing the pagan lifestyle as sinful, turning from that, moving towards God, and insofar as you find yourself falling back into that, yielding that, so forth, um, grieving that, confessing it as sin, repenting of that, coming back to, to God again. That's what's taking place in the life of the Christian that is the evidence of genuine faith. And where that's not there, I'm sorry, you can, you can talk about your faith all you want to talk about your faith, but I just can't give you an assurance of you that, 
of your salvation, including your justification, um, when, when your faith doesn't seem to be making any actual difference to your life. And that's where Paul leaves us, with statements like that. So does he mean that? Yeah, he means that, right? He's talking to Christians. I've told you this before, I'll tell you it again. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's be clear about that. to stop. Um, if you have any other, if you think about that, if you have any questions for me, always available to you. Um, let's pray.